you say I'm delicious here in the belly of a whale. Lord, please make him chuck it all. It's a gut call in the belly of a whale. In the belly of a in the belly of the whale. In the belly of a in the belly of the whale. There's actually a rap part as well, but I'm not gonna try that. But as you can see, maybe oh thank you. That's a wonderful song, and I've always loved it. But you know, there's a, there is an even better song about Jonah, and it's written by Jonah. It's what we call the Song of Jonah, and it is Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2 contains his prayer. Often in scriptures, prayers are very poetic. We think of Hannah's song, Miriam's song. These are words of praise to God, thanksgiving to God. And here we find what is a beautiful... Jonah's remembered for a lot of things. Rarely is he remembered for penning this beautiful song of prayer. And like the song in the belly of the whale, this one is very deep and has an awful lot that we can glean from it. Here we are in chapter 2. We actually already began chapter 2 last week by the Hebrew reckoning because we were looking at 117, the verse that says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Judah and Jonah, rather, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In the Hebrew Bible, that's Verse 1 of chapter 2. And I think that's probably a better division. We've come to the end of Act 1, and as he's tossed hopeless into the crashing waves, Jonah is left there at the end of the chapter. It's a cliffhanger. What will happen? Chapter 2 begins with God appointing this fish to come and swallow him, showing that he will use what should be an instrument of death to drag Jonah down into the depths of the grave and in some way use that as a means of salvation before then, three days later, sending him back into the land of the living. Very, very clearly foreshadowing Christ in many different ways, but we talked about that last week. We, we talked about the three days. We talked about all of it. And so this week I want to begin by just pointing out after three days in a fish, how... I mean, where would your head be at? How despondent would you be? And yet, somehow, by God's grace, Jonah is not despondent. He is reflecting. And he is ready now to pray to his God. This God he's been fleeing. And notice here, as we read verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. Notice it's still his God we're talking about. It doesn't say he prayed to the Lord God. And we might think, hmm, is he really one of God's anymore? He ran from him. He fled from him. Instead of saying, I'll return and repent, he said, throw me into the sea. Let's just end it all. And even with all this, I mean, this is beyond backsliding, even beyond this apostasy, God is still his God according to God's inerrant word. He prayed to the Lord his God. This reminds us of the words of the prodigal son when he had turned and left his father. And he was in a far distant land and he was working against and living against everything he'd been taught, everything he'd been taught to believe, everything he'd been raised to be. And yet he says to himself, I will return to my father. See, family works that way. You're still connected and he's still our father. He's still our God. Even when we look at our life and go, how did I get here? What am I thinking? What have I been doing? He's still our God. He's still Jonah's God here. He prays, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. 
Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah had been fleeing from God's presence. Remember how that was repeated several times in those first few verses? From the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. But now, without leaving the fish, he has fled to the presence of the Lord. He's now praying out of the belly of this sea creature. And not only that, but he sees himself as praying out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the grave or the abode of the dead or the unseen world. And he says, you know, when someone dies, we put them down into the earth and they have entered a different mode of existence. Well, I'm kind of down here. Metaphorically, I'm, I'm in Sheol. The King James says, out of the belly of hell, not too far off. This is absolute proof that God hears you wherever you are. You don't have to come to church to pray. We don't even face a certain direction to pray. We, we just we throw it up to Him because we know He's sovereign and omniscient and He hears us. You can cry out to God in your heart silently and passionately. We don't need to pray out loud on the street corners like the Pharisees. Jesus said, go into your closet and pray to your God who is unseen. He knows our hearts and He hears our prayers. So he's praying out of the belly of the whale, out of the heart of Sheol, out of hell, and he says, out of my distress. I prayed out of my distress. We might translate that even out of the reason of, or by reason of my distress. This is why I'm praying. He's got a lot of distress. Poor whale's probably got a lot of gastric distress, by the way, as well, but he's praying out, and you know what? That's a good reason to pray. I've heard people say otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't cry out to God for deliverance unless you've been putting in your time or He won't hear you. Oh, I just know that when I don't have my quiet time and read and pray in the morning that later on in the day if I have a hard time, uh, he, won't, he won't help me. He's, he's, no, God, God will hear your prayers. We're treating this like a human relationship when we say that. In fact, even in a human relationship though, if, if the only time I ever talk to Terry is when I've locked my keys in the office and I need him to come rescue me, he'll, he'll be annoyed with that, but he'd probably still come rescue me. And if humans would be willing to do that, why would we think that our God wouldn't? Now, that's not a good relationship, not by any stretch. And you don't want to have that kind of relationship with God. It results in an unfulfilling sort of up and down in extremes, in Jonah's case, fits and starts, a spiritual life that doesn't truly honor God or build us up, but... Remember, when you say, oh, I want to cry out to God, but we're not on the greatest of terms right now. Remember, he specializes in these moments of, I am down, stuck in the muck, in the slimy pit, and I can't get out. I need you to lift me out. And Jonah, he sees after these days, reflecting in the belly of this beast, that he actually is in the process of being saved. He sees that he was saved from death in the sea, from being dragged down and, and drowned. And he sees that action as the, the good faith payment, the down payment on the entirety of his salvation. Not unlike how we read that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection of all who have died in Christ. That we will be raised like he was raised. And so he's repenting. He's returning. Remember, that's all that word means. Turn around and go back on the same road that you had come. And there is wonderful what we call intertextuality here. We've been talking about this in Sunday school a bit. 
When he prays, you, you take this prayer and analyze it, you find that it's like a tapestry. And you start pulling out all the threads of this tapestry, and they are made entirely out of psalms. What he is praying is what he has fed his soul, which is God's word. He's praying this prayer that's woven from the prayers of saints who came before him. And it is a beautiful prayer. And it is a powerful prayer. This reminds us uh, quite a bit of uh, a situation later on when uh, in Isaiah 38 we see King Hezekiah praying for deliverance in an equally, well, maybe not equally, but a similar situation, quite hopeless. And he seems to then go back and use Jonah's prayer, mixing it in with some other. If you have any interest, by the way, in praying, the power of praying this way, praying God's word back to him, you should attend our school of prayer, which is resuming on September 6th, Wednesday night. A little plug there. This is how Jonah's praying. He's praying God's word. So he's not just returned to God's presence. He's now returned as well to God's word. And those two things must go together. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He identifies who it was who threw him in. Who was it literally threw him in? It was the sailors. He told them to, and they did. But he sees God's hand in this. Jonah identifies God, not the devil, not bad luck, not negative energy, as the source of his sufferings. Here, he recognizes it was the hand of God that hurled the wind out after him, and essentially the hand of God who hurled him into the sea, just as it was the hand of God that rescued him through the swallowing of this whale or whatever it was. Job, similarly, when he is suffering, just setback after setback, crushing heartbreak after heartbreak, he says, we receive good and evil. And that Hebrew word evil, as we'll see next week, it doesn't necessarily mean a moral evil, but disaster, bad things happening. We receive both good and evil that the Lord gives. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And we read that as he attributes these things to God, in a sense, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What he said was true. God was at work. Now today... Most even preachers will say, oh, God would never do that. When God's at work, it's all puppy dogs and rainbows. If something bad is happening, it's not him. God must be powerless in that equation, apparently. But the book of Jonah doesn't have a God that, that works that way. This God is sovereign. This God is in control of the wind and the waves and the, the fish down in the depths that we wouldn't even think about. God knows, and God speaks to them, and they act this reminds me a bit of what Luther called God's merciful wrath, which is paradoxical. But God's merciful wrath is when he disciplines us, when he somehow pulls us down into the depths or knocks us off our horse or whatever he does to bring us to a point of having a broken and contrite heart in order to receive salvation. In this case, he actually pulls him down into the deep. This is a, a kind of a rare Hebrew word, I, was, I had a very fun time, very nerdy time, uh, doing a study on this word. It comes up just a dozen times in the Old Testament. And this word, which, which means the depths, simply, is the same word used to describe in Exodus 15 how Pharaoh's army sank as a stone into the depths. They're gone. No one is going to hear from Pharaoh's army ever again. Not so for Jonah. 
He goes down to those same depths. And for him, it's a temporary prison. What's the difference? God's intent. Those who had hardened their hearts completely against God, God gives them over to that hard heart. We start reading, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God uses it as judgment against them, dragging them to the depths. In this case, Jonah's one of his. Jonah belongs to Yahweh, this God, and so God is simply punishing him to bring him back to a a place of obedience. Again, the world today and even the church today balks at that idea. Would God do that? Read your Bible. He's doing it all the time. See, the spirit is willing, as Jesus told us, but the flesh is weak. And what God is doing here is it's almost like you're watching a movie and there's a guy who's kind of losing it, right, in a situation. He's, oh, I don't know what's going on. And somebody walks up and slaps him. Sometimes it's comedic. Sometimes it's dramatic. But kind of brings someone back to him or herself. This is sort of what's happening here. God's kind of smacking Jonah to get him to stop talking and acting crazy so that the spirit will triumph over the flesh in this situation. He'd been asleep. He was asleep when he was supposed to be calling out to God, when he was supposed to be calling out for God to Nineveh. He was just out of it. And now, quack, whack, he's awake and he's praying. Psalm 119, we read, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept thy word. Before I was afflicted, when everything was fine, I went astray, but now I've kept thy word. Then I said, I am driven away from thy sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He'd fled from the presence of the Lord. Now he's cast out of sight, out of the light, away from the giver of life, into the depths. And this is kind of what he wanted, to get away from God. Now you can't actually get away from God, but if you're going to try, this is probably your best bet. Bottom of the ocean, in the great unknown where no one had any clue what was even down there, in the belly of a beast, so that maybe, maybe God's x-ray vision won't even get in and see him there. This is what he wanted, and God gave it to him just to show him what it was like. Romans 1, God often turns us over to our shameful lusts to show us where they end, so that our sin becomes our punishment. To a certain degree, if someone winds up in hell, they chose that. They did not want God's presence. And God, with a broken heart, grants them their wish. But this is not the end of the story. In verse 4, this could be taken out of context, and it could be preached in a very kind of hurrah, let's go do this ourselves kind of way. I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your temple... Could sound like I'm down, but I'm not out. You can't keep a good man down, but just ask Jonah. Yeah, you can. God does it. God is doing it here. The context will show us that it's not Jonah's own grit that saves him. In fact, that's what got him into this mess to begin with. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. This is not the kind of seaweed wrap that you do to make your skin better. This is actually another picture of Christ, I believe. The seaweed around his face is a symbolic of death. In that culture, when someone would die, they would put over them a shroud, a, a burial cloth, and they would have a secondary cloth that would go over just their face. Remember this? They find these things when they go into Jesus' tomb. 
I believe we actually have the one that was on Jesus' face. We call it the Sudarium of Aviado. Here, this is actually a metaphorical burial cloth on his face, and it seems to describe something inside the fish. Ah. This is actually a good book for people whose biggest fear is that they'll be buried alive, because this is a much greater fear to replace that one. You'll be buried in the sea in a fish and, like, digested. Verse 6. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. How clearly we see the Psalms, Psalm 30 here. How clearly we see this same theme that happens again and again. I fled from you. I fell down by my own disobedience and rebellion into the pit. And now you will raise me up. Again, remember, and again, I know, broken record, but this key word, go down. In the very beginning, he's told, arise, go to Nineveh and cry out. It's echoed again when the captain of the ship says, what are you doing sleeping? Arise, cry out to your Lord. And yet Jonah's response is always to go down. We see that word again and again and again. Same word in the Hebrew, very short, sweet little word that keeps popping up. Yarav, he went down down to Joppa. From Joppa, he said, I, I'm going to Tarshish. So he went down into the ship. Once on the ship, he said, can I go down further? Oh yeah, down into the belly of the ship. Hope you like bellies, right? Because then he tells them, throw me down into the sea. And down he goes. And then as he's sinking, he's gobbled up and taken down into the depths. Now, now we can say he's truly hitting bottom. Because we're talking about the root of the mountains at the bottom of the ocean. This is Sheol for him, whose bars closed me up forever. See, he sees no possible escape without the miraculous help of God. And this is a good place to be for someone with the heart of Jonah. And all of us tend toward the heart of Jonah, if we're honest. Only in light of our own hopelessness can we find God. We pass through it like a doorway from death into life, from despair into hope and a future. And the direction is now suddenly, finally changing. It was down, 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 down. And remember, repent is to turn and go in the opposite direction. And as he repents, things are now looking up. We went to the roots of the mountains, he says. That's the bottom. And then we read, you brought up my life from the pit. Now we're going up. I am driven away from your sight, down, down, down into the sea, but now my prayer comes up to you into your holy temple. When things are all around you going down, start looking up to Him. The longer it takes you, the further down you will fall. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. And remember, in, in the Bible, especially when you're dealing with the Hebrew, the word remember doesn't imply that you've forgotten something. It means to call something to mind. So, for example, when God hears the cries of his people in Egypt after 400 years, and he remembers his covenant with them, it doesn't mean that he was occupied with other stuff and was like, oh no! You know, I sometimes, ah, the hot dogs, I forgot about them, and they're all charred. This isn't what happened with God. He calls to mind his covenant with them. That's what remember means, and that's what's happening here. He hasn't forgotten God. 
If he'd forgotten about God, he wouldn't have been running. God was in the back of his mind, kind of cordoned off. I'm not going to call that to mind. My calling as his prophet. My my identity as one of his people who belongs to him. I'm not going to call it to mind. It's walled off. And now I remember. Now I choose, as as I'm at the bottom of the sea, to call out to him. As I call him to mind. Those who pay regard to vain idols forget their hope of steadfast love. That vain idols, I guess, is a decent translation of the idea, but the King James gets the words just right. Those who pay attention to lying vanities. All the idols of all the nations are lying vanities. And not just little stone guys, but anything that promises what it can never perform. Yes, all the gods of all the nations, unless they are the one true God, are lying vanities because they can't perform anything. They can't deliver anything. But so are the idols of pride and ambition and covetousness and self-will. Unless we're willing to take these things and submit them to the will of God... They can become idols that will drag us down to the belly of Sheol. And it might happen dramatically like this with a spectacular flame out, or it might happen with a whimper. But God will call his own back to himself with whatever means he must. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. This is the change, the turn when he returns to God, and when he acknowledges that God is a good God, a God of hesed, of of covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness, loving kindness. What happens when we begin to turn from him is our hearts close up and lock down. When we are in the midst of sin, sinful attitudes, when we're in the midst of hating our brother or sister, when we're in the midst of anything that goes against the will of God, We feel far from Him. And when we feel far from Him, then we begin to stop thinking of Him. We don't call Him to mind. But what we see happening here is almost like unlocking the chain when we begin to thank Him for His mercy, thank Him for saving us. It restores in us a sense of God's presence with us and His favor upon us. And if there's one thing that the enemy wants, it's to keep us from having that sense. Once you've locked yourself away and you've, you've put God in the back room of your heart and mind, if the devil can use shame to keep him there, he has all the control. It's on, I remember that in the 90s, every third film, there was always the line that the devil's greatest trick was convincing the world he didn't exist. Nah. The devil's greatest trick is convincing the church that he has any power, that he's holding any of the cards. He wants you to say, I am, I am beyond the reach of God's grace. I'm going to have to continue shuffling along in this awkward, sinful lifestyle with sinful thoughts of the wicked. Well, Christ is still somehow my Lord. He's my Savior maybe, but not my Lord. It, none of it works. And so what we have to do is cry out in thanks and praise, thanking Him for His salvation, for delivering us from the the chains that had wrapped us. And this is what Jonah does here. He, he thanks God for something God hasn't yet done. And this is throughout the Scriptures. We see kings putting choirs at the front of their armies, praising God 
thanking him for delivering the enemy into our hands and the battle hasn't even started yet. There's a, a term for this in, in the, the Hebrew language. It's called the prophetic perfect. Talking in kind of the past tense, the complete tense, about something that's still yet incomplete in the future because you know that God is that powerful. This is what's happening here. Jonah ends his prayer of thanksgiving just as the mariners ended theirs with sacrifice and vows. So Jonah is just a few steps behind these filthy heathen that he did not want to minister to. He's almost there. He says he'll bring a sacrifice with thanksgiving. He understands the doctrine. He understands that contrary to the way that the pagans all around them viewed sacrifice, a true sacrifice is thanks to God, gratitude, an expression of gratitude rather than an effort to appease his wrath. Just like the sailors, having already been delivered from the storm, still offered sacrifices and made vows. And Jonah now sees that clearly, and he sees one thing very clearly. Salvation is a gift of God, not an achievement of man. And that is how he ends this prayer. For salvation belongs to the Lord exclamation point, and that belongs there because it's an emphatic statement. This, this phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, it's the apex of his thanksgiving. And it's a, it's a, a miracle, it's a miraculous statement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, I think of the movie, Miracle. Remember this one? It's about hockey, the Miracle on Ice, 1980 Olympics. And it's about this coach that was, he was so odd, and, and he had, had all these unorthodox methods, and yet... They still got the gold because he knew what he wanted. He knew how to push the guys in the right direction. There's a scene at the beginning where they're all introducing themselves, and he has them say who they are, where they're from, and who they play for. And you very quickly realize that half of them played on this one team in the playoffs a year or so ago, half of them on this other team, and they hate each other. And so they emphasize who they play for. And, but they're supposed to be the team, United States of America. And so after there's this awful game where they tie like the Swedish team or something, I don't know, the coach comes out, he says, where are you going? You're not going anywhere. We're going to have a workout now. And he makes them start doing this drill where they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And he has them doing it into the night. The, the guy who runs the rink is like, I'm going home. He turns off the lights. He says, you're not going anywhere. He has them continually doing it. Again, again, again. He blows the whistle. They go, they go back and forth. Finally, when they're about to pass out, one of them shouts at the top of his lungs his name, Mike Ruzioni, Winthrop, Massachusetts. And the coach says, who do you play for? And he's, he's out of breath, and he goes, I play for the United States of America. And at that moment, the coach says, that's all, gentlemen, walks off the ice. And you realize he was trying to bang into their heads through this very unpleasant ordeal one idea. You are a cohesive unit. You need to understand that. Well, God seems to have been doing a similar thing with Jonah. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to get unpleasant until you recognize this one thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And as he's even thanking God preemptively for rescuing him, he is now rescued and now free to return to serving this living God. You see, Jonah begins to recognize a truth, and it doesn't fully dawn on him yet, and that will be his downfall. But what he's beginning to recognize is that, yes, Yahweh is Israel's God, but he doesn't belong to us. We belong to him. Jesus is our God, but he doesn't belong to us. 
the Western church or the Baptist movement or whatever. We belong to him. And when you start to understand that, your view of God opens up and gets a whole lot bigger. Jonah comes to understand his poverty of spirit, his own wretched heart, and therefore God's great mercy. We remember Newton. He had that wonderful line, I know two things. I've lived a long life. I've learned only two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. It's so easy to sign on to all the right statements of faith, the orthodox confessions about God's sovereignty and His grace, but now Jonah has experienced it. Now this is under his belt. Jonah has lived this, that salvation belongs to the Lord. I remember maybe 10 years ago, as this new movement was, was kind of coming up, they called it uh, the Young Restless Reformed Movement or the New Calvinists or this or that, and I was very, very into it, very excited about it, very part of it. And looking back at it, it's so ironic that it was all about rediscovering the sovereign grace of God and yet within that movement, there was so much pride, intellectual pride. This notion that uh, we're the ones who get it. Everyone else, it barely makes sense for you to even bother to go to church because we are, that's what's going on with Jonah. And he suddenly understands, it clicks for him. Salvation doesn't belong to me. It's not mine to give, it's not mine to withhold. It belongs to the Lord and he will give it to whomever he wills. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah, then, recognizes that this is the climax of his understanding. And this statement, salvation belongs to our God, is the climax of his prayer. It's the foundation of the book, theologically, and literarily, it's the midpoint of the whole thing. And the irony here is that he has this high point, this mountaintop spiritual understanding experience, when he's physically at the lowest possible point. He remembers who God is and who he, Jonah, truly is. Of course, as soon as his troubles are behind him, he'll begin to forget, but we'll save that for next week. Before we close, a few points of application. First of all, it is never too hopeless to pray. Whatever your situation, whatever your location, have you ever been anywhere this bad? Bet you haven't. Whatever your health, Whatever your family, whatever your sin that you're trapped in, whatever your selfishness that you can't shake, pray. Look to God. You feel that you're going down, 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 and there's no possible way. Objects in motion tend to stay in motion in the same direction unless they're acted on by an outside force. Look to that outside force and pray and thank Him for saving you. Remember, salvation belongs to our Lord, and He gives salvation to us. And you know what that word is in the Hebrew? Yeshua. Yeshua. He gives Jesus. That's Jesus' name in the Hebrew. To us means salvation. And when life starts to go a little wonky, we often will tend to begin to bargain with God. When things are a little bit off, bad idea. God tends to just kind of turn up the heat and push you down lower until you stop all that nonsense and recognize I'm about to be digested. I got nothing to offer here. And thank Him and praise Him, and recognize that He alone is the author of salvation. Secondly, we see Jonah winding up now in verse 10, back on the very shores of Judah that he was planning and trying to flee. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the return trip 
God is sending him back. And you've got to wonder what God would have done if Jonah would have gotten on another ship. Who knows? But remember, repentance means going back the very path that you traveled to get where you are. The prodigal son, he had to walk back on the same road that he smugly walked out on with all that money in his purse going, I am going to have the time of my life. Now he's walking back in shame saying that was a mistake. It can be painful, but it's the only road to reconciliation. We have to admit that all this progress wasn't progress at all. And finally, the fact is that Jonah is now back in God's presence. Even here in the belly of the fish, he's in God's presence. How do I know? He's praying, which is one of the greatest marks of God's presence in a believer's life. Remember Acts chapter 9? God says to Ananias, I want you to go to this, this gentleman Saul. He needs you. Saul of Tarsus. And he says, what? Are you kidding me? He says, no, rise, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Come on now, God. Saul, I know what he does. He imprisons Christians. He kills Christians. This might be a trap. He's a one-man Nineveh, this guy Saul of Tarsus. And God says, behold, he is praying. When you find yourself at your darkest, at your lowest when you find yourself, you know, in the enzymes, breaking us down, down to the core, as the song says, pray. Look up. Look to God and pray. Thank Him for saving you in the past, and thank Him in advance for saving you in this moment. Praise Him. Offer Him your sacrifice of taking up your cross day after day by way of thanking Him for His great sacrifice. And trust that he will then be your salvation, for salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this story, which has been often neglected and often misunderstood and often a, a touch point for controversy and debate. But Lord, in it we find the message of salvation. In it we find the Lord Jesus himself. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to avoid going the route of Jonah. You would help us to, to catch ourselves before we even arrive at Joppa and correct course and repent and turn back and return to you. But Lord, when we do find ourselves at these low points, having turned away from you, I pray that in your Holy Spirit you would compel us to pray, that you would call to our minds that we would remember Jonah and that we would remember that there's nowhere too low that you won't hear us, that there's nowhere we can sink where you won't save us, that Lord, you are a God who gives life, that you do not desire the death of a sinner, but that we should repent and live. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.